The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I want to thank Rob Reed for teaching last Sunday. Uh, most of the teachers and staff and board of directors and some other leaders, we had this wonderful training from Ruth King. She has been, besides being a Dharma teacher in Charlotte, North Carolina, and also she teaches regularly up um, with the Washington Washington, D.C. community, Insight Meditation community with Tara Brock and others. Um, but she also has been a professional uh, trainer, organizational consultant and trainer, specifically, especially these last decade or so, uh, doing anti-racism work, um, both for corporations and uh, also for Dharma organizations like Common Ground. So we're really fortunate to have Ruth here and hopefully we'll continue to work with her as the years go by. And so uh, you might have noticed there's a big table in the lobby. That means it's like a clock for us. That means it's around the solstice or equinoxes. We have a potluck, so we'll be having a potluck after. Everyone's welcome to stay. Even if you didn't bring food, we share here. (laughs) So feel free to stay for that if you'd like. And it also means that we take this Sunday morning around the equinoxes and solstices to do this particular reflection that's been part of the Buddhist culture for basically since the time of the Buddha, 2,600 years ago, where, and this is the important piece, it's really meant to be a reflection, a joyful reflection, although often, you know, we have this conditioning, so when we hear about ethical conduct, morality, it kind of lives in our hearts as a big should, you know, you should be kind, you should share, you shouldn't steal, you should be a good person. Maybe we remember a parent, a teacher, sort of that scolding, judgmental, and then we just internalize it so then it exists. It's not even about authority figures anymore because we've got that authority figure inside of ourselves. And that's not actually that useful in terms of developing this very important part of spiritual life. And this, of course, is not specific to the Buddhist teachings because you find these same teachings everywhere, whether it's in an institutionalized religion or just people with common sense. You know, sometimes we call it the golden rule, but it's just this common sense that, a little bit like the chant we did before the sit, it really matters how we're showing up in the world you know, with what kind of attitudes, how we justify actions. And the interesting thing about morality from the Buddhist teachings point of view, it's not some external set of what's right and wrong. We know what's right or wrong when we pay attention and we notice directly the effect on our heart. That's how we know something that we've said or done is off, is because the residual, the sort of, ongoing feeling tone of having done that or said that is that kind of crunch. Or the ongoing feeling is like it feels, that felt pretty clean. That felt, the remainder feels pretty light. Like, oh yeah, that was a tricky situation, but I seem to have handled it in a skillful way because when I honestly look, when I look with real sensitivity, I don't see or feel anything left over. But the the point I really wanted to make this morning about, in Buddhism we call them the precepts, these five training precepts or training guidelines, undertaking the training not to harm living beings. 
And there's really no end to this training. It's like just because you don't shoot people doesn't mean you somehow have mastered this first precept of undertaking the training not to harm, right? It's, it's meant to be never fully realized or fully developed, right? Because there's always a more refined attention to how we're complicit in subtle systemic ways in people being harmed, ourselves and others. The second is undertaking the training not to still steal, not to take things that haven't been given. Right? I mean, it really begs the question about just how our economy operates and who benefits and who is oppressed by the different systems that we're part of. And what do we do about that? Right? So it isn't meant to get to some end that these, training, these trainings are really meant to become more and more sensitive. And here's the point. That deepening sensitivity about how, we're, how we participate in harming and how we can refrain, how we can avoid harming others, the whole point is not to get heavy about it. It's supposed to be a cause for joy. Not that joy we only get joy when we're perfect, but just committing to being sensitive to how we're part of harming circles you know, or harming tendencies things that harm others, things that oppress others, this willingness to get sensitive is very enlivening and liberating. We do it because it feels good to do it, not because it's just some oppressive, I should do it. I should get sensitive to how I'm contributing to global warming. I should get sensitive to how I'm sort of participating in a class system that oppresses, keeps people without a lot of wealth, in that lower class box or oppresses people by race or oppresses people by gender or sex, right? This stuff can feel very oppressive. Like, oh, I just can't handle it. My life is too busy anyway. I, I just don't have it in me to be sensitive to how I live in an empire called the United States of America that oppresses, you know, through things that I don't even understand, you know, corporate systems and trade systems that oppress people, you know, in less developed places in the world or how the racism exists or criminal justice injustices exist in ways that harm people in systematic ways. That's just too much. So it feels like opening to these, this um, training in non-harming, it feels oppressive to us. But I'm just, and I think the Buddha would invite us to take a closer look. It might actually be something that's a, uh, an essential piece to feeling better, to feeling like initially it's called the bliss of non-remorse, like or the sleep of the just. What was it? Cornell West has this great line. I think it's Cornell West has this great line about. Um, Uh, justice is what love looks like in public. Does that sound right to people who know that quote? Right? It's like, and love is an enlivening and beautiful emotion. It's not like in a heavy duty, oh, I'm, a, I'm in a loving state. No, it feels good to be in a loving state. But what does that look like in public, like in action in the world? So it's really as we, and we'll chant this or read this together in just a few minutes, these five precepts, undertaking the training not to harm, and the other four are really just riffs 
on the first one, undertaking the training not to harm, undertaking the training not to take things that haven't been offered, that don't come our way in a natural circle of giving and receiving, right? Undertaking the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. Malik, I just noticed, is over there, and Gabe Keller, Flores, and uh, Louis Alameyu, and uh, Omkar, and uh, Rob Reed and I, uh, next Sunday afternoon are leading this conversation for people who I identify as a man or a male, masculine, and want to have a community discussion about how we're participating in sexual misconduct and just sort of comes with the territory of having bodies with a lot of testosterone and cultural conditioning and all of that clearly is part of some systemic suffering around the arena of sexuality and sex. And so we're going to take a look at that, and it won't be the first time, or the only time rather, that we, because it's part of this awakening process to just not to feel bad about being a man or having a penis or having a lot of testosterone in terms of your hormones and the effects of all of those things or the conditioning maybe because you know you were raised like I was you know with all the TV and all of that sort of information all the imprints that come with identifying as a boy it's not about feeling bad it's just about understanding what that is seeing it and realizing what it is and what it isn't right it's alive in this body and mind it gets triggered shows up and relationships and in moments, right? But we can learn, we can train the mind to be aware of it without being confused by it, without kind of out of habit, just identifying with it, taking it personally. We can feel it. And in not being afraid of it and not being confused by it and being willing to feel it, then there are some choices about what we do with that conditioning. And that's really our work all of us, not just people who identify as a male. And then the fourth is undertaking the training to refrain from false speech, harsh speech, using speech as a weapon, you know, slander, and even idle speech. Idle speech is just like talking because you're afraid of quiet, you know, you're just sort of filling the void or, I don't know, sometimes we sort of, are needy in a way, so we capture someone by talking so they can't leave. You know, <laughs> notice that we nor- normally don't notice when we're doing it, but we definitely notice when other people are doing it to us. <laughs> but that's, you know, in, in the tradition, that's called idle speech. Basically, we're not aware of it's sort of just uh, we're on automatic pilot, talking on automatic pilot. So that's how we use speech in ways that are harming, even in very subtle ways, taking advantage. In a way, we're taking someone f- something from someone else, like their time, without really asking. And then the fourth is undertaking the training. It's not necessarily that consuming alcohol or even some recreational drugs are inherently unskillful, but often undertaking the training to refrain from intoxicating the mind, often when we uh, drug the mind or even other addictive things we might consume, you know, watch a lot of pornography or, you know, just get obsessed about some 
news in ways that we're sort of acting out some addiction. We're sort of taking the pill of rage or self-righteousness over and over again by reading a series of articles, even if it you know, seems somewhat skillful. But the effect on the body and mind is to be feeding on self-righteousness, basically getting addicted to the juice of self-righteousness. Well, that's not that different than drinking too much beer or you know, doing something else that is basically dulling the mind, making the mind less of a careful instrument because one of the things, you know, a lot of what we do with our regular meditation practice and daily life practice of being more mindful is we become very sensitive. And it's really hard, as you, a lot of you know, it's really hard to be a human being and be really sensitive because the cycles of suffering are enormous in us and around us. And to be more clearly aware of what we feel and what is happening with other people around us is really hard to sort of be honest and sensitive and undefended so we want to dull out. We want to intoxicate the mind. We think that that's an escape. And it, because it is temporarily a kind of escape, whether we just do it by watching a lot of TV, silly TV that doesn't really do anything, it doesn't educate us or anything, but it's an escape. So we don't have to feel what it feels like to be a sensitive human being. So we want to realize this fifth training is understanding that escaping is not how we go beyond suffering. Temporary escapes, whether it's a less skillful one like drinking too much or a more you know, relatively wholesome one by you know, reading a lot of novels that we feel are like good literature or something like that, but we're sort of obsessively dependent on having a book to read because otherwise we don't know how to go to sleep at night. It's like a lot of us, a lot of people I notice, it's like, they need to be absorbed in something, TV or a book, because they don't really want to be in that space where they can feel what it feels like to have lived a day, you know, as they're going to bed at night. So they find something to fill the space of the mind until that point they're ready to drop off to sleep. But what is it like to just be lying there and just feeling whatever's left over from the day or from your life, whatever's still moving in your body, in your heart, in your mind, right? So that's really what this fifth training is about. So we have these five trainings and they're designed to be enlivening and liberating and have a good vibe, right? The bliss of blamelessness. It feels enlivened. In fact, one of the basic medicines in the tradition is if you're feeling a little down or depressed, or confused in your life, which you know is not uncommon for all of us at different times, some of us more often maybe than others. The thing to do is, the Buddha would say something like, well, reflect on your morality, reflect on your ethical conduct. Now, when we hear that, it's like we immediately want to bring to mind all the bad things we've ever done, right? But that's, it's a little bit like when you're sitting and meditating and the only meditation move you have is to look at what's painful. Well, it can be skillful to open to the pain in the moment, but if that's your only meditation move, you're basically screwed, right? 
Because if all your mind, all the wisdom in your mind knows to do is to look at what's painful, to look at what's heavy, to look at what's tied up into a knot, you're going to get tired, exhausted. Your mind's going to get bitter and brittle. right? And you, you won't be able to deepen your understanding. You're basically going to leave your practice because it's just you, the practice itself becomes oppressive. So in order to continue with the practice, yeah, we need that skill, that courage, really, to look at what's painful, what's difficult, what's confusing. But it also has to be in combination with a lot of skill about noticing what's enlivening, noticing what's beautiful, noticing what's joyful in life. We have to be just as good. And initially, we actually have to be better at that second half of the skills that we need than that particular part, the important part of looking at what's difficult and painful. We need both. And so when you do this work of, in, in this tradition it's called sila, that's the Pali word for integrity, ethical conduct. But just to be really straightforward and grounded, this beautiful resolve not to be part of causing harm. And to see that pathway, that like intention not to harm, as like a liberating thing to pursue. How to have children without contributing to harm. How to have an intimate partner, a committed relationship like a marriage, without causing harm. How to have imperfect parents and relationships with my imperfect parents without causing harm how to care about these sticky places of injustice like racism and sexism and classism and these sort of sticky parts that we're all sort of part of and and trapped by because we've all been to some degree conditioned by the culture where these (coughs) patterns of suffering exist in, how to show up without causing, contributing to harm but so that our participation, our way of showing up, our way of understanding is part of the uh, disentangling and the going beyond and the freedom from these deeply messy, sticky places in our society. So that (coughs) the commitment to non-harming, whatever you call it, is really a source of joy, a source of strength, a source of energy in your life. And so at night, for example, when you've had a difficult day and you're feeling a little (coughs) depressed or discombobulated by all the imperfect ways you've handled things, you could strategically think about how integrity has operated that day, how the commitment not to be part of harming has operated that day. You could basically rebalance your mind, your heart, energize your mind and heart, calm your mind and heart by really specifically noticing how that commitment to non-harming is a living force in your mind. Imperfect for sure, right? Even if you're one of those people far along or someone who's just beginning to sense the importance of this commitment to integrity and non-harming, but you want to see that that commitment, however feeble it is, is a source of like self-esteem, like in normal Western psychological terms, 
that self-esteem is there and, and makes me feel good to notice. And some of us, you know, who have been, who kind of are more in the Buddhist tradition, well, every morning I'll go through these five things, you know, just in my own voice. I don't do it as a parrot, like repeating, but, but I'll think about it. This, uh, I undertake the training to refrain from harming living beings. And then I'll take some seconds and I'll visualize that and I'll feel good about that, like these edges, and that precisely because it's an edge in my life that I care about shining the light of awareness in this particular place where I could be engaged in harming, that feels ennobling, that I care enough in the morning to bring it to mind. And I undertake the training not to take things that haven't been given. Right? So I think about that in terms of eating, you know, and I... And just kind of, like I said, even in terms of like how I am in groups and how much space I'm taking up in the group. So subtle ways. You know, I don't go taking your wallets when you leave them on the cushion or, you know, oh, a wallet. <laughs> you know, and a lot of us, we're, we're beyond that place of sort of those gross infractions. You know, we, we already know that acting out the tendency to take someone's car or to you know, hit back when somebody insults us, like that that doesn't help. So it's the more subtle edges that we want to be aware of around sexual misconduct. It's such an interesting thing about how we, uh, yeah, just how we use power. And this is especially true probably for men, stereotypically more than people who identify as women. But just to be aware of how that operates in our relationships and around speech, and around intoxicants, whatever they might be in our life, to really feel enlivened by that. So um, once a quarter then, like I mentioned at the beginning, we do this particular recitation. And as I said, folks who have been inspired by the Buddhist teachings have been doing this recitation for 2,600 years, basically in the same sort of way that we're going to do now, no matter their particular culture, particular language. So that's why we use the Pali language for a lot of this. It's just to kind of align with the folks before us and the folks and the other countries who are doing this, just because we appreciate it. So it's on page 35. And we do the uh, the three precepts to begin with, taking refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. Buddha means we're taking refuge and this capacity to be awake, that's what Buddha means. That's actually what the b- word means. It's not the name of this guy who we have a statue of. He was, his name was Shakyamuni, right? Gotama. Those were his names, but they called him Buddha because he was awake, right? So we take refuge in this, this potential in our heart and mind to be awake, unafraid, in this wakefulness, right? And what do we do with that wakefulness? We wake up to the way it is. We open to Dharma. That's what Dharma means, right? Sometimes it refers to the Buddhist teachings, but the Buddhist teachings are all about connecting with the way it is. So Buddha, wakefulness, wakes up to the way it is in the most simple, pragmatic, in-the-moment way. We take refuge. As people who are inspired by these teachings, that's what it means yeah, we don't call ourselves Buddhists usually because it, 
it's a setup, right? It's just another ism. It's better to say we're people who are interested in dharma, but don't even use that word for other people. Just say dharma just means like, I just want to be real. I want an authentic connection with the way it is. Because that's what that word means. Waking up to the way it is. And then sangha, the third refuge, means enlightened activity. Or you could say beautiful activity we see when a mind is not caught up in self-centered dramas. Right? So whenever a mind, like even though I'm not fully awake, there are moments when my activity, the way I'm relating, the way I'm speaking, is relatively beautiful because it's coming out of a mind for a few moments that's not entangled with self-centered drama, greed, anger, and delusion, right? And so my action, my response in that, those moments, it's relatively skillful. And then in other moments, my mind is caught up in greed, anger, and delusion. I am self-centered. And so that's that sangha. That's like Mark's being unskillful. Right? You don't want to take refuge in that, except like learning from it. Like, oh yeah, don't do that, because he's going to suffer. He is suffering, and he's causing suffering. So when we take refuge in Sangha, we're taking refuge in those moments where we see in another person, or we see in ourselves, somebody who's awake to the way it is, Buddha knowing Dhamma, and what we see coming out of them is that fearless, kind, creative, nimble response to that moment that they're living. And we're inspired by it. Oh yeah, that's Sangha. Or you can just call it, that's skillful action. But that's what Sangha means. So quarterly, and then a lot of us every day, we remember these three things because it's just a simple way of remembering our practice. Being awake to the way it is so we can engage the world in these creative, nimble, fearless, beautiful ways. And that's that, as students of the Buddha or as people who are inspired by the teachings of the Buddha, this is what distinguishes us. We're really interested in these three things. Being awake to the way things are so we can respond in these beautiful, creative, non-harming ways, compassionate ways. Right? And then we'll do the five precepts. And then after we do the precept in Pali, we'll, sit, we'll read it together in English. And then I need five volunteers to read Thich Nhat Hanh, this Vietnamese, this wonderful Vietnamese teacher, Buddhist monk. Um, he just has his own comments on each of these five trainings. So if we could have five. Yeah, so Andrew, do number one. Anybody want to read number two? Thanks. Haya, Paul, number three. Who wants to read four? Thank you in the back. And why don't you do number five? Great. So let's do this together. Some of you might want to use Anjali if you are sort of like these rituals. It's just this kind of respect, like I care about this, these trainings that we're undertaking. So let's begin. And we're just following along on page 35. We honor our teacher, the Buddha, first. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang saranang gacchami Dhammang saranang 
gacchami sangang saranang gacchami dutiyampi buddhang saranang gacchami dutiyampi dhammang saranang gacchami dutiyampi sangang saranang gacchami tatiyampi buddhang saranang gacchami Tatiampi damang saranang gacchami Tatiampi sangang saranang gacchami I take refuge in the Buddha, trusting inherent peace and freedom of a heart free from clinging. So we just reflect on that wakefulness for a few seconds. How natural it is. Now the second refuge. I take refuge in the Dharma, trusting mindful awareness of the way things are. So just kind of reflect on that as a lived experience right now. Buddha knowing Dhamma. And then the third. I take refuge in the Sangha, trusting those with wisdom and compassion who show us the way. Good, and we'll do the five precepts now. We'll do the Pali, we'll read the English, and then we'll listen to one of our community members read Thich Nhat Hanh's comments nice and loud so we can all hear you. Anatipata where amini sikapadang samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from harming living beings. Just see what comes to mind as you reflect on this first training. Where the edges may be in your life. Good, let's do the second. Adina dana where amini sikapadang samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. Okay, just take a few.
few moments and see where the edges may be in our lives. Another third. Kame su michachara, where amini sikapadang samariyami. I undertake the training to refrain from causing harm through sexual misconduct. Again, just reflecting for a few moments. What that might look like in our lives. Now the fourth. Musawada where amani sikapadang samariyami. I undertake the training to refrain from false and harmful speech. Now the last, the fifth one. Sura Maria Majapamaratana where Amani Sikapadang Samariyami I undertake the training to refrain from the misuse of intoxicants. Transformation and for the transformation of society. 
We reflect for a few seconds. And then we finish with a phrase at the bottom there. Idam me silang maga falanyana sa pachayo ho tu. May my conduct conduce to attainment of the highest fruits of liberation. And then we dedicate this, taking refuge, undertaking the five mindfulness trainings, and practicing the way of awareness and insight gives rise to benefit without limit. I offer to share all blessings and merit with my parents, teachers, family, friends, and with all beings everywhere. May this life and practice contribute to the great stream of causes and conditions leading to happiness, peace, and liberation for all beings. May all beings be happy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.